Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. We are in our conversation where we're walking through the book of Daniel. And today is part three of our Daniel series, and just really excited about that. I'm going to tell you, today's going to feel a little bit more like a Sunday school kind of Bible study, and your brain might hurt, but that's all right. You know, like even this series, like Daniel's a hard book. Daniel's a hard book to teach through and, and preach through. It's, it's kind of a hybrid book. It, it's weird to kind of pigeonhole what Daniel does because it does several things. First of all, it has a lot of history in, which we've been in the last two weeks, just kind of dealing with some history. But it also, and I, I looked and used Wikipedia, I don't think there's a word for this, but like it deals with ancient prophecy, meaning things were prophesied then and then they've already come to pass and they've been completed. Like it deals with fulfilled prophecy that was for their time. But it also deals with, and I'm gonna throw a church word at you, called eschatology. And that means in times. It comes from the Greek word eschaos. Okay, and, and that means last or things at the end of days. And as we walk through Daniel, we're going to deal with some, how the, what the Bible talks about, how the end of days or how that prophecy comes out. Now, now eschatology, if you want to add the word ology onto something, it means you study. Like if you took biology in high school, that means ology is the study of and bio is life or geology. You know, so geology is the study of the earth. Pastor Matt writing a course on wrestlingology. You know, like he wants to study. Pastor Joe has a fishingology. If you want to study something, you just put the ology on the end of it. Okay, so Daniel has this history component, which we've seen the last two weeks. It has this ancient prophecy, which is fulfilled. You'll see some of that this week, but it also has this eschatology or end times. You're going to see just just this much of it. And, and really the reason why I felt compelled to preach through the book of Daniel is this right here, because this is our goal as a church, as Christians, to help answer this question and manage this tension. How do we stay biblically faithful and culturally relevant? Because sometimes that's really, really, really hard. How do we hold true to the things of God and live according to Scripture? And not look like a bunch of kooks that are out of touch and, and weird or, or just kind of withdraw into, well, it's just us in, in our club. That, that's why we have cameras and stream and YouTube and social media accounts and why we do next generation ministries for youth and, and kids is because for the sake of the gospel, we are trying to engage the culture around us. So we have to walk as believers, as Christians, we have to be spiritually faithful and culturally relevant. And sometimes that's really, really, really hard. Last week, we, we talked about how Babylon was trying to indoctrinate the young Jewish people that they had brought into the kingdom. And, and here's the deal. The, the devil is not creative. He operates the same today that he did in Daniel's time. Like, there's no new strategy. Sure, the faces change, the names change, even the cultural settings change. That's why it's important for you and I to study biblical history. It's important for us to study the Bible because we can learn a lot from what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through and how the enemy tried to indoctrinate them because he's still doing the same things today. And so if we don't learn from our past, if we don't study our past, then we're out here just kind of exposed. And so that's our goal. 
And I know this, that the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's quick and active. So whatever we study in Daniel impacts us. It helps us. It teaches and prepares us for the spiritual battles that we may face in our lifetime. Amen, everybody? So our goal is to be spiritually faithful and culturally relevant. So today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can open up there if you want to turn it on or however that works. And, and even through this study, I want you to bring your Bible. I want whatever you highlight in because even today you're going to see some words that if you had your Bible, I'd say highlight that, look at that because it, it, it's important, it's powerful. And with this as well, there's a lot that happens in Daniel chapter 2. And so I'm just going to kind of hit the high points. We're going to read a lot of verses. But I would encourage you this week in your study time, try to read Daniel chapter 2, 3, and 4, because next week we're going to move into chapters 3 and chapter 4 and see what goes on there. And so you'll see, there's a lot. I'm not leaving stuff out on purpose. Oh, he left. No, 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 no. I'm not leaving anything out. I'm just trying to hit the high points, because Daniel 2 is actually a really long chapter, okay? So throughout church world and theology and people that study the Bible, there's, there's varying thoughts on the promises of God. Let me explain what I mean. You, you read a promise out of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, 11. That's one that when I say that, some of you've memorized that. Maybe you've got artwork that says, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, their plans to prosper you, not to harm you. You know, we've, we've made social media posts out of that or share that. I mean, that's just, it builds our faith. It's so encouraging. We love that verse. But there are people in church, there's even theologians that would say, well, that specific verse was spoken to the children of Israel in ancient time. It was spoken to them for a specific time and a specific situation. While that part is true, they would go on to say that that doesn't apply to us today. I'm not that guy. I, I'm a guy that I know that that verse was spoken to specifically to the children of Israel. I know that it was spe- specifically for them in a situation. But I also believe, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, that the promises of God are yes and amen for those who are in Christ. So I believe we can look at some promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. And even though they were for specific time and situations, I believe they can also be applicable for our life today as well. The reason why that's important is because the book of Daniel has two audiences, okay? There's two people receiving this. The first set of audience is the characters in the story. It's the people that, this is Daniel just writing history, you know? And so it's, the story is for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's for King Nebuchadnezzar. But the other audience that this is for is the ages. It's you and I. It's history. It's for all the centuries who would read the story of Daniel, who would read the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, and who would read the story of how faithful God is. You and I are an audience. This story was written for you and I, and today I believe you're going to see the purpose of why Daniel would go to the bother of writing down this story in this encounter with King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, be patient with me. I'm going to read a lot, going to jump a lot of verses, but we'll be careful to to tell you where we are. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, 
I had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Well, the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. But the king said, I ain't messing with you. That's the BKV version of this, right? He said, the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you're gonna be torn from limb to limb and your houses will be turned into a heap of rubble. Okay, let me just be clear. King Nebuchadnezzar had a bad night. He has these dreams and he pulls in all of his special advisors and he says, listen, I had a dream. I need you to tell me what I dreamed, and then I need you to tell me what that dream means. And if you don't, I'm gonna kill you. Hashtag no pressure, right? And they kept trying to get the king. Well, king, if you'll just tell us what you dreamed and we can tell you what it means. And the king gets frustrated with them. Nobody can tell him what the dream was and tell him, obviously, what it meant because they didn't know what the dream was. So all these special advisors, he said, kill them. Just get him. There's a problem with the story. Daniel and then his friends Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, we may more famously know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? They're in that category of special advisors, okay? So the firing squad goes to find Daniel and go, hey, buddy, um, you gotta go die. You know, Daniel's like, hold up, hold up. And literally, he says, don't, don't kill anyone just yet. And he tells the king, I believe I have a way that I can tell you what you dreamed and, and then I can interpret that. So Daniel gets his friends together. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they pray, hashtag no pressure. And like, God, you have got to tell us what's going on here. And so that night, God reveals to Daniel the vision. So Daniel chapter two, verse 25, all right? Ariok quickly took Daniel to the king and he said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. So the king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, and his street name is Shazzy. All right, all right. That's not real. Is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and then tell me what it means? Verse 27, Daniel replied, listen, king, there's no wise men there's no enchanters, no magicians, no fortune tellers, none of your special advisors, not even me, king. No one who can reveal the king's secret, verse 28. But there is a God. Like that's the title of today's message. There is a God. That's the point of this story. That's the point of why Daniel bothered writing this down. There is a God in heaven who reveals the secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. And now I'm gonna tell you your dream and the visions you saw while you laid in your bed. The purpose of this story is found right there in verse 28. There is a God, all right? So verse 31, this is Daniel talking to King Nebi. And he, he basically says, like, here's your dream and, and this, is, this is what's gonna happen. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver, its belly and thighs were bronze, and its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. 
And then as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but it wasn't cut by human hands. It struck the feet of iron clay, smashing them to bits. So here's a picture of our best rendering, what we think that statue would have looked like. And the statue was made of four, and actually there's a fifth component where you have the iron and the clay mixed together. And today I'm gonna walk you through all of that. You've got the head of gold, you've got the chest and arms of silver, you've got the belly and thigh of bronze, you've got the legs of iron, and then you have the feet that are this mixture of iron mixed with clay, all right? And I'm gonna explain what each one of those means. But before I get there, I want you to notice something. As the statue moves from top to bottom, as it moves from head to feet, the value of the material that's there decreases, but the strength of the material increases. For example, gold, that's at the top. Gold is the most expensive material that's listed. Silver's next, okay? Silver's a little bit stronger than gold, but it's less expensive. So it's stronger, but it's cheaper. Bronze is stronger, yet it's cheaper than silver. You see this pattern of trading value for strength, of trading quality for power. I'm trading my values, my character, if you will, for strength. And the culture we live in today does the same thing. At work, it's so tempting to compromise value for a stronger position, to compromise my character to get a leg up. In relationships, we compromise value so that we can have control or, or have the upper hand. So here's the statue. And so now I'm gonna go section by section and tell you what each one of those means, just as Daniel does in Daniel chapter two, verse 36. So that was the dream. Now, we will tell you, the king, what it means, your majesty. You are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabitants of the world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are that head of gold. Let me put that for you in 2022. King Nebuchadnezzar, you are a regular Ricky Bobby and a Ron Burgundy. You know what I'm saying? Like, you are the man. It's awesome. So the head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire. Like, let's start with you. Like, you, you, like, the inhabited world, you're the man, okay? And the Babylonian Empire went from 626 to roughly 539 B.C. As you're going to see, this is one of the shorter empires that we're going to walk through. If you were here week one, we talked about Genesis chapter 11, that the descendants of Noah, after the flood, they started having kids and grandkids and all that and, and became quite the little populated area. And some theologians think out of fear of another flood, some think out of anger and frustration with God, they decided they were gonna build a tower. And so the tower was gonna be so tall that if ever flooded again, at least some of us would survive. But the, the frustration with God, did, like it says that we're gonna build a tower and confront God about why did you kill our great-great-grandparents and so on and so forth, okay? God looked down and goes, well, that's probably not gonna end well, you know? And it says that he confused the languages of people. And in some of the older translations of Bible, it will talk about kingdoms or nations or tribes or tongues. And so there at 
Babel is what that became known as, the Tower of Babel. Like, that's what it sounded like. I didn't understand what you were, like you were speaking a language that I didn't understand. So God literally confused their languages. So they tribed up, if you will, by, well, I can understand you, so we must be of the same tribe. And then from there, they went out and populated the rest of the earth. Babel, right there at that place is where the empire or kingdom of Babylon came to be. Okay, Babylon, massive, massive city. It was the largest city in the time. It was actually one of the first world powers and they believe it was about 50 miles south of Baghdad. That's modern-day Iraq, okay? Also, I want you to keep in mind with this statue that as we've looked the last two weeks that Babylons were the first people really to take the freedom away of the children of Israel. Remember, you had the nation of Israel. You had the nation of Judah. They were their own sovereign. But the Babylonians took them into captivity. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream begins with the ending of Judah as a free people. So it, it's, this vision starts with the captivity of Judah, all right? So keep in mind, this statue is gonna walk through four kingdoms of four periods of time, but it begins with God's people in Judah. So you have the head of gold, which is Babylon, you the man, you the Ricky Bobby, and then it moves to the chest of arms and chest and arms of silver, verse 39. But after your kingdom comes to in there will be another kingdom, and they're going to be inferior to yours. That's why they're silver, not gold, right? And they will rise up and they will take your place. The kingdom is represented by a chest and two arms of silver. Now, some theologians believe this is the joining, because there's two separate arms, that this is the joining of two kingdoms coming together. They were both strong tribes, if you will, but they weren't strong enough to take on the Babylonians. So these two tribes came together and, and made one united nation, Together they could defeat the Babylonians. And these two tribes were the Medes and the Persians. And, and they were both in what's modern day Iran. Okay, they were just two tribes that came together. And so they came together as one empire called the Medo-Persian Empire. And they would go from roughly 539 to 331. So almost 200 years to be exact. You're actually gonna see the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire in the study of Daniel in the coming weeks that we look at this. Because Daniel, he's at the end of the Babylonians and he's at the beginning of the Persians, of the Medo-Persians, okay? And so, and I wanna hit pause for, for just one second. This doesn't really have anything to do with the statues. I just find this interesting. Remember the audience of the book. The audience of the book is people of the contemporary day that was then, but then the audience of the book is history. The audience of the book is you and I, all right? There will be a Medo-Persian king by the name of Darius. We'll see him in the book of Daniel. But then there will be another significant Medo-Persian king. And I want to show him to you in Scripture, all right? So on the timeline of things, I want to back up in time just a little bit to a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And he came and he prophesied to the people of Judah when they were a sovereign nation. Judah had their own kings. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 says, hey, these are the visions of Isaiah, son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And he saw these visions when Uzziah was king, when Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, when they were kings. So I'm, the reason I'm telling you that is because Isaiah prophesied before Judah was ever captured. Isaiah prophesied when Judah was its own independent nation, okay? So I wanna jump to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah died 50 years before Daniel was even born. 
So even though they were in the same time period, they did not know each other. They did not prophesy in the same circle. Isaiah had been gone for half a century before Daniel was ever born. So Isaiah chapter 44. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer and Creator. I am the Lord who made all things. I alone stretched out the heavens. So what, the reason I show that is to say this is a prophecy from, him, from God speaking to the people of Judah who have their own kings. They're independent. This is way before Babylon was even a thing. Verse 28. When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. Now, I don't know about you. There's a lot of names in the Bible. Most of them I can't pronounce. And when you read a name like that, you're like, oh, okay, great. I don't, Who's Isaiah prophesying about? He's prophesying about the Medo-Persian king labeled Cyrus the Great. Isaiah lived in Judah when it was an independent kingdom. The Babylonians conquered Judah. The Medo-Persians will conquer Babylon. This prophecy happened 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. But God prophesied through his man Isaiah. Listen, when I tell Cyrus to let the people go home, when I tell Cyrus, he's gonna do what I tell him to do. Okay, so here's the thing I want you to see. God uses a pagan king to fulfill his purpose. So if God can use a pagan king, Cyrus, then there's hope for me. Amen, you know what I'm saying? Like, amen, right? Here's what's important about the Medo-Persian Empire. It's what's important about today's conversation. Because the Babylonians, remember, they conquered Judah, they brought everybody, they scattered them, took the best and the brightest. Here, you're coming to Babylon, you're serving King Nebuchadnezzar. That's why Daniel even knows Nebuchadnezzar. When the Persians take over, they're like, hey, you guys can go home. You can go back to Judah. You can go back to Jerusalem. They were allowed to return to their homeland. Many of them chose not to. Many of the people from Judah, many of the children of Abraham, they chose not to because they had profited so much from the Babylonians. They had become so ingrained in the Persian culture that when they had the chance to go back home, they didn't, no, we'll just stay here. We kind of like it in Babylon better. There had come to the point that there was no difference between the Babylonians and the Jews. That the people around us know that we belong to Jesus. What's the difference between the children of God and the world? People at your work know that you're a child of God. Answers this question, how do we remain biblically faithful and yet reach the culture around us? Okay, so you've got the head of gold, chest of arms, or the chest and arms of silver, right? That's the Medo-Persian. At this point, I need you to look at your neighbor and make sure they're awake, because I know there's a lot of history right here. All right, wake up, come on, come on. Verse 39, the second part of that verse says this. After that kingdom, after the Mede-Persian, there will be a third kingdom and it's represented by bronze. Again, the quality, the value goes down. Okay, gold to silver, now we're to bronze and they will rise and rule the world. That belly and thigh of bronze is the Grecian Empire or the Greeks, okay? And they reign from about 331 to 63 BC. So that's a long time, okay? Almost 300 years. It's a long, strong empire. Alexander the Great's one of their major players. He, the Greek empire expanded to the known world. 
And the story goes, he actually wept because there was nothing else left for him to conquer. I'm bored. I don't think I'm going to do now. Mom, I'm bored. I bought you a PlayStation. You get in there. I'm sorry. Okay. All right, verse 40. That's all I got to say about that. Following that kingdom, all right, so following the belly and thigh of bronze, there will be a fourth kingdom, and it is as strong as iron. And that kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw had iron in them, but they were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided like iron mixed with clay. It will have some of the strength of iron. So there's a, there's a lot going on. But the legs of iron, let's start with just the legs of iron on the statue. Okay, That represents the Roman Empire. And, and the Romans defeat the Greeks, 63 B.C., and they go for 400 and, or into 476 A.D., by far the longest, by far the strongest empire. Now, something significant happens in that date, okay? Something happens in that 413-year span, and our calendar is based upon it. You notice the years switch from B.C. to A.D. Now, B.C. means before Christ, A.D. means Anno Domini, it's Latin for the year of our Lord. Like when I was a kid, people used to say, A.D. means after death. That is not true. That's not a thing. That is not it. It means Anno Domini, which means that, that zero, in theory, when they did their best math, they're like, okay, so that's when Jesus was born. And so history will count backwards from there and count forward from here. And by the way, that was the influence of the Roman Empire. Jesus was born during the time of the Romans, okay? So remember King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It, it, it started when Judah was brought captive. They're no longer free people. So the children of God are now captive, and it spans all the way to the birth of Christ, okay? So his, his dream covers that, that time span from the fall of Judah to the rise of Jesus, all right? So secondly here, one, one more thing. Remember the, the chest and arms? There were two arms, okay, and that meant two nations coming together. Well, if that held out to be true, the legs, there's two of those. Maybe there's two Roman empires. What, what's the story there? So let's kind, of, let's kind of dive into that. The Roman Empire eventually was divided into two kingdoms. And by the way, today, in 2022, the world still refers to the regions by the... Roman kingdom divisions. The Roman kingdom eventually became east and west. And to this day, we still refer to global powers, well, in the east or in the west, okay? So there's also this, you had the legs over the Roman Empire, but now it mixes in with clay. At the bottom, there's this mixture of iron with clay, meaning that the influence of the Romans still exists into the future. And let me just show you how the Roman Empire still influences and exists today in our situation, all right? And a normal, typical person has how many toes? Somebody said 12 in the last service. Like, that got weird. Like, okay, 10. This statue has 10 toes. You're gonna see this number 10 make an appearance later on in the book of Daniel as we get to end-time things, all right? So you've got the east and the west of the Roman 
Roman Empire, all right? The West really became dominated by the Catholic Church that was centered out of Rome. Even today, the Vatican is still there. It's where the Pope and so on and so forth, all right? There were times when Europe was governed by papal states, okay? So there would be political leaders, but the Roman Church really had the power, all right? The, the Church is what held the power. The other kingdom, so the East, morphed into what became known as the Byzantine Empire. And there is not a test on this, all right? But the Byzantine Empire in the East would eventually be dominated by the northern tribes. They would come down and they would conquer the the southern part of that. And those northern tribes were what would become known as the Russian Empire, okay? So even in the geopolitical struggles, you have the East, which typically refers to Russia and their allies, and you have the West, which typically refers to Great Britain and the United States. And that goes back to the division of the Roman Empire after it kind of fell and crumbled. Let me show you how the Roman Empire still influences, how its iron is still mixed into our clay. Rome had a Senate. We have a House of Representatives. No, I'm just kidding. We also have a Senate, right? Okay. Rome was a republic, a representative republic. We are a representative republic. In Germany, the leader, right up till World War I, if you were the head of state in Germany, you were known as the Kaiser. Kaiser. Ah, it just sounds angry. Kaiser, right? Sure enough, Kaiser is the German spelling for the word Caesar. Roman influence dominated the monarchies of the Western nations. But the influence is equally present in the East, in Russia. A Russian ruler right up till World War I was called a czar. Guess what? That's the Russian spelling for the word Caesar. So King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And Daniel says, well, here's what you dreamed. You dreamed this statue of gold and silver and bronze and iron and iron and clay. And let me tell you what that means. And every one of those things that Daniel prophesied in the book of Daniel chapter two, with the exception of one, every one of those things has come to pass. The Babylonians, the Mede-Persians, the Greeks, all that happened just as Daniel said it would happen. But there's one part that's yet to happen, okay? While Daniel was telling the king what he dreamed, verse 34, and he said, as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like shaft on the threshing floor. But the rock, the rock that knocked down the statue became a great mountain that eventually covered the whole earth. It's interesting, he says, that rock was not cut by human hands, okay? So this story is not found in scripture, it's found in history. That when David's son, King Solomon, was building the temple, Solomon's temple, and it was the most beautiful and grand and glorious, they wanted to preserve the temple mount as much as possible. Like they didn't want it to be disrupted, they didn't want a lot of, loud stuff going on. So what they would do is they would construct parts of the temple at other sites and it was ready. They would haul it in 
and then they would just assemble it with as little disruption as possible because they felt like that was holy ground and, and they wanted to just preserve the Temple Mount as much as possible. So the walls of the temple were constructed by these massive, massive stones. Well, they didn't want the sound of constant chipping and ding, 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 ding. They didn't, they didn't want that at the Temple Mount. So they would construct the stones at the rock quarry. And this is where you go, they better have some really good engineers up in this place. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if we're going to haul this big old stone, the measurements better be right. So the story goes that they constructed this 500 ton, not pounds, 500 ton stone. They did it to measurement and they sent it to the site. And when they got it to construction site, there was some confusion. They didn't, like, I don't, I don't know. It's not like, so we don't know, so just set it aside. And they're building and they're constructing and they're building and they're constructing and they get to the point where they need this really important rock and they send word back to the quarry like, hey, would you guys send the foundation stone? We're waiting on you. And they're like, you already have it. What are you talking about? We sent that a long time ago. Oh, hey, remember that big 500-pound stone? 500-ton stone? So when Jesus is there and he's talking, and he says the stone that was rejected, everybody in the audience knew exactly what he's talking about. Anyway, he was referring the stone at Solomon's temple that was actually the most important stone. It was the foundation stone. It's the cornerstone. But when it got there, they didn't know what to do with it. They were confused about it. They, they, they misread something, and so they rejected it. They set it aside. And so that day when Jesus said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, everybody knew. Oh, yeah, that's that funny story. One more story about altars. In Joshua chapter 8, the children of Israel had just defeated Ai. There's a whole lot that goes into that because Ai was like a little bitty army and they got, Israel got beat the first time. But this time they did it right. They followed God's orders. Everybody obeyed and they did. And then God said, all right, Joshua, I want you to build an altar of sacrifice. But here's the deal. You can only use uncut stones. No cement trucks. You can't chisel stones to fit making it a really hard process to go and find uncut stones, which God was saying, listen, I want you to find stones that he's cut. Like this altar wasn't built out of human hands. It might've been assembled and put together, but it was God who cut the stones. And so when King Nebi has this dream about head of gold and chest of silver, and belly of bronze, even King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about the cornerstone. Even King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about Jesus. And so here, here's, here's the point of why we take the time to kind of drudge through this history of all this. Because every one of those kingdoms came to pass. The prophecy that God spoke through Daniel, the Medo-Persians came to pass, the Romans came to pass, the Greeks came to pass. And if all of that is true, if all of that prophecy came to pass, friends, you and I can be dead certain that there is still a king to come. 
There is still a kingdom that has not been created by human hands. It is a stone that the builders rejected that's become the cornerstone that God has formed that kingdom and Jesus is going to come and every knee will bow, every kingdom will fall, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. Felt a little bit like a, a sympathy clap. Whatever. <laughs> Daniel 2 is the fulfillment of history. And it happened just as Daniel prophesied. And there's that fifth part that's yet to happen. And it said that that uncut stone will basically take over everything. Every earthly kingdom will fall. Every earthly government will fall. It says it eventually becomes a mountain. and One of these days, there is a new heaven and there is a new earth that's coming and we are gonna reign and rule with Christ. If the first four parts of the prophecy came to pass, friends, you can count on that fifth part is gonna happen. Amen, everybody? I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I wanna invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the world. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.